0: Good morning. It's so good to see all of you today. I hope you're having a great morning and I want to thank you for being with us today for spending a little of your Sunday morning at worship here at Fort Caroline either in person or online. We are glad you're here and if you're a guest with us today, my name is Ricky. I'm honored to be the lead pastor of this church and you're in a great place. You're connecting with a great group of people and if we can help you in any way or tell you more about our church don't hesitate to contact us and let us know there's a let's connect card on our website and uh, you can let let us know that uh, you were with us today we're in a series of messages this month called united we stand and we're talking about how that especially as followers of jesus the things that make us different don't have to tear us apart that we can show the world a picture of humility and unity before the lord even in tumultuous times like we live in Politically or racially or economically or any other tension that we feel or differences that we have. Those things in Christ don't have to tear us apart. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to make sure you're with us next Sunday. It's going to be a special service uh, next Sunday. I've asked my friend, retired police officer, Greg... Burton to come and to just have a conversation with me. Uh, Greg and I have known each other for many years. Uh, he's a, a wonderful man. His wife, Lakeisha Burton, is actually the zone commander for Zone Two, which is where our church is, and uh, she's become a dear friend. And these are two followers of Jesus. And I've asked Greg, as an African American police officer, come and have a conversation with me about. How we as followers of Jesus can lead the way in righting a lot of the wrongs that we see in our culture. So I hope you'll be here next week. He's going to be here live in this service and in the next service. And of course, we'll live stream this service next Sunday at 930. But today I want to talk to you about this question. What does it take to please God? Have you ever asked yourself that question, God, what's your will for my life? Have you ever prayed, God, show me your will for my life? Have you ever wondered, God, am I doing what you want me to do? God, am I living a life that is pleasing to you? I think if you're a conscientious follower of Jesus, there's been a time in your life when you've wanted to know the will of God for your life. And you want to know that your life is making a difference for God. And you want to know that you're in the center of His will and that you're pleasing Him by how you live your life. And that's what I want to talk to you about today from the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I'll put the words up on the screen, but you may want to go ahead and turn there to the latter part of your Old Testament in the section called the Minor Prophets. And uh, you'll want to find Micah, chapter 6. Or if you don't have a copy of the Bible, just open up your phone and uh, if you've got it on your phone or your tablet and turn on your Bible uh, to Micah chapter 6. Because we're going to discover today that we often complicate what God simplifies We complicate finding God's will and living in God's will and living a life that pleases God. We sometimes act like the will of God is some mystery that he's holding back from us and he doesn't want us to know. And we have to live in this fog of wondering, am I doing what God wants me to do? As a matter of fact, we're going to see today that where we complicate, God simplifies and he explicitly spells out the life that pleases him. And this is so important in our day of tension, to know, am I pleasing God in how I'm living my life in this culture that is going through so much tension at this time? I don't want to sit on the sidelines. I want to make sure I'm living like God wants me to live, even in these difficult days. And so If you will listen and if you will learn and if you will apply what we learned today to your life, it will make a difference for you today in how you live your life today. But if we miss this, if we don't get this right, we're going to live perhaps religiously busy lives, but we're going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, I really wasn't pleased in that. You you were busy, you did a lot of good things, but that's not what I was looking for. And you missed my will for your life. And if we get this right, we can be a blessing not only to ourselves and our families and our friends, but even in this community and our neighbors and in our culture. And if we get this wrong, we will miss being the godly influence that God wants us to be in this generation, in this time. And so there's a lot at stake here if we don't get this question right what can I do to please God? What kind of life can I live that is pleasing to God? And so today in Micah chapter 6, we, we set the context. We've got the 8th century prophet named Micah. 8th century before the birth of Jesus. And God has sent him to the people of Israel to say to them, You're religious, absolutely, but your religion and your ritual is empty. And it's not bringing me pleasure. It is not what I'm looking for. But I'm going to show you what I'm looking for in your life. And Micah was living in a time in the history of ancient Israel where they were being pulled apart at the seams. There was cruelty, there was political and economic corruption. There was empty religious ritualism where people's hearts were not really dedicated to God. They were just going through the motions. The powerless were being oppressed by the strong. The laborers were being defrauded by the owners. The down and out, and even the immigrant, were being hated and castigated, all in the name of God. And there was corruption even among the ministers of God. Sounds a lot like our day, by the way, doesn't it? It's like you're reading the newspaper. It's almost like we're scrolling through Facebook. It seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so there's a lot of connection that we can have from Micah's day in the 8th century B.C. to our day in the 21st century today. It's almost like a courtroom scene as we open up Micah chapter 6 where God is the judge and the people of Israel are the defendant. And this is the courtroom scene. It's almost like the beginning of verse 1 is the bailiff standing up saying, All rise. Listen to this, Micah chapter 6 verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. It's God calling his people to judgment. It's God saying, I want you to go ahead and plead your case and tell me why you're living like you're living. Because you're not living like I want you to live. And he's calling the mountains and the hills as witnesses. It's almost as if everybody in Israel is corrupt and none of them can be witnesses. In fact, they're on trial So God calls those ancient witnesses who have seen everything that God's done in the history of Israel from the very beginning to that very moment, the mountains and the hills. Verse 2, hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Israel's being brought before God because they're not living a life that is pleasing to God. And God's going to call them out on it. Verse 3, my people, this is God asking this question, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. It's almost like the judge stepping down from the bench and walking over to the defendant's table and saying, what have I ever done to you? Why is it that you're fighting me? Why is it that you've rebelled against me? Tell me, answer me, plead your case. Why, after everything I've done for you that is good, you are not living for me. Answer me, indict me. And now God begins to, in verses four and five, to recount those mighty acts of redemption that he performed on behalf of the people of Israel. Look at what he says in verse four. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. 400 plus years you were slaves to the Egyptian pharaohs, and yet I am the one who delivered you. God's recounting those 10 plagues. He's recounting leading them out of Egyptian bondage into the wilderness. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Verse five, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? He's he's reminding them then that even before they entered the promised land, they encountered people who wanted to curse them, but God made sure those same people actually blessed them. God says, I've been good to you. And, And God says, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Shittim is the last place the children of Israel camped before they crossed the Jordan River and claimed the promised land. Gilgal is the first place they encamped when they got into the land that God gave them freely by His grace. God is saying from beginning to end, from then to now, I've been good to you. I've redeemed you. I've loved you. I've been protecting you. Even when you weren't faithful to me, I've been faithful to you. What is it you've got against me? Why aren't you living a life that is pleasing to me? After all I've done for you, how have you responded? And then Israel starts pleading her case. Verse 6 With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Israel saying, God, you've got us dead to rights. We haven't been living for you like we should. But what do you want? Maybe you want more religious fervor. Maybe you want more sacrifices on the altar. Maybe you want more oil that dedicates those sacrifices. Maybe you want us even to do what our pagan Semitic neighbors do, offer their firstborn to the idol Molech and kill our own firstborn to please you. They're going to extremes saying, God, it's almost like they're trying to indict God. God, you're just hard to please. God, we've been coming to church. We've been singing the songs. We've been putting money in the offering plate. God, what more do you want from us? As if empty ritual is what God's looking for. Isn't it amazing that they were willing to offer up any empty ritual as long as it meant they didn't have to offer up themselves. They were willing to go through any motion, any ecclesiastical commotion, any kind of church service, To be able to check off a box and say I've done my religious duty today and then I can live however I want to live after I leave this service. Who cares what I think about God after I get finished with my worship service? Who cares how I treat my neighbor or a stranger that I meet as long as I've gone to worship and I've done the religious deeds prescribed for me as if that is what God is looking for. That's not what pleases God. It's not saying that the Old Testament sacrificial system was not ordained of God. It was. It's not to say it didn't have a proper place in the history of Israel. It did. But all of that was simply to be the overflow of a heart that was already dedicated to God. God's not looking for empty religion, and he's still not looking for empty religion today. Just going to church and checking off a box is not what interests God. It's not going to Please God. So what does please God if that doesn't? The Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. is this beautiful, elaborate facility that has a huge reading room and then all around it on the perimeter are these alcoves dedicated to different disciplines of study. The arts, sciences, history, and there's even an alcove dedicated to religion. And over each one of the alcoves, there's a painting that that illustrates that certain discipline. So when they came to the alcove of religion, they wanted to know, what should we put above this alcove that will best symbolize religion? So they called together a distinguished panel of rabbis and priests, Protestant ministers and evangelicals. And they said, what should we put here? And what they decided upon was Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is what we read, God speaking. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Do you want to know what it takes to please God? Do you want to know his will for your life? Do you want to know what God wants you to do after you've sung the songs and offered the prayers and given your money and you've gone through all of those things? He wants you to act justly. He wants you to love mercy and he wants you to walk humbly before your God. Where man complicates, God simplifies. He says it's not that difficult what I'm looking for. First of all, he says, what pleases me is that you act justly. The word for justice that is used here in the Hebrew is mishpat. And it means that when we see a wrong, we want to set it right. In American justice, we symbolize lady justice like she's blindfolded. And it's a symbol of the equality that people should experience when they stand before the bar of justice. That it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your skin color, what your religion. That when you stand before the bar of justice, you ought to be treated equally. But in the Hebrew conception, it rips the blindfolds off. And it says... True justice is where you go out and you seek and you search for what is wrong and you act justly to make it right. God was concerned with that. You read the book of Micah and you see that God is concerned that the poor are being oppressed by the rich. God is concerned about that. God goes to the marketplace and he sees people cheating buyers by adding weight to the measure. So that they're having to pay for more than what they're getting. God is interested in that. He sees landowners being defrauded of their land when they get in debt. God is interested in that. And he sees religious people, religious leaders, priests and prophets and teachers who were not practicing what they preached. God's interested in that. And he says, true justice is that you act justly in every relationship, in every arena of life. You do what is right and you also seek to make right what is wrong. That is why here at Fort Caroline we're a church that is interested in not just preaching that you individually should act justly in your marriage, act justly as a neighbor, act justly when you go to the office tomorrow, act justly when you encounter people in rush hour traffic, act justly in your day-to-day deals with people. We are also a church that says, as the people of God, we ought to care about helping to set wrongs right. That's why we feed the hungry. That's why we shelter the homeless. That's why we help rescue women from human sex trafficking. That is why we do a lot of the good things we do in our community is because we want to be a church known as a church who acts justly. Sometimes we need to take the blinders off and we need to see what is wrong so that we can then act justly. I watched a documentary just a few weeks ago about Emmett Till. I would heard about and read about Emmett Till as a kid when I was studying American history. But you recall probably that just a teenage boy, 1955, Mississippi, who was lynched and brutally killed because he was accused of whistling at a white woman in her family-owned grocery store and it was terrible it was gut-wrenching to watch that documentary and when the body of Emmett Till was finally discovered the funeral home director said you cannot said to his mother you cannot see him and she said oh yes I will i have to see my boy but but he's been bludgeoned he's been murdered he's been sunk in a river you can't see him she said i will see him And then once she saw him, everybody said, well, you're going to have to have a closed casket service. And she said, no, we will not. We will have an open casket because I want people to see what they've done to my boy. And many people, many historians look back and say that was one of the beginnings of the move towards civil rights in America because it opened eyes of Americans like nothing else had done. To seek justice. And dear friend, that's what mishpat is. Act justly, not just in your day-to-day life, but seek justice if you have the power to right a wrong. But that's not all God's looking for. God is also looking for a life that loves mercy. So God's saying, I want you to act justly and to love mercy. The Hebrew word for mercy is chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. And it's often translated in your English Bibles as mercy or kindness or loving kindness. It is a word that speaks of a covenant loyalty that says we are in covenant together and I'm going to love you faithfully. And it's first and foremost a picture of God's love For his people Israel. That God formed a covenant with them in the Old Testament. That he would be their God. And God expresses his mercy. Because even though they are unfaithful. He's always faithful to them. They're not true to God. But God is always true to them. They don't always love God. But God always loves them. And God shows them loving kindness. Over and over and over. It's not based on what you do. I don't respond how you respond. I've made a covenant. I'm going to be faithful to do the right thing no matter what you do. And as new covenant believers, in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, to love mercy means that we live our lives in such a way that we don't just love it when we are shown mercy, when we've done wrong and we need forgiveness, but we are actually a people who love mercy Because we show it to other people. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy is whenever you don't give someone what they do deserve. Mercy is when you refuse to repay someone evil for the evil they've done you. That's mercy. And we are to love mercy. Mercy is when you forgive another person even though they've never repented and they've never asked you for it. You seek to forgive anyway. Mercy is when you seek to do good to someone even when they've been bad or harsh to you. Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for them and do good to them. That is mercy. And one of the things missing in modern America today is a call for mercy. There's no room for mercy in our cancel culture. There's no room for mercy that says, not only only are you a sinner, but I'm a sinner as well. And not only are you perhaps standing in need of mercy But I also stand in need of mercy. We all should love mercy. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to demonstrate it in practical ways. And in this culture, it will stand out. It will stand out. Because people don't seem to love mercy anymore. And then he says, we are to walk humbly. We act justly. That pleases God. We love mercy, showing mercy faithfulness and kindness and goodness, but we also walk humbly with our God. To walk means to conduct your life, that you live your life in humility before God. Every great person I've ever known has been a humble person. And they didn't have to tell me they were humble. (laughs) If you have to tell people you're humble, you may not be humble. Lori Gray, she plays the keyboard. She's my ministry assistant, our church's financial secretary. Uh, She will probably not want me telling you this, but there was a day that this well-known evangelist called the office to speak to me. And she and I know him. Well, he's with the Lord now, but we knew him personally. We've had meals with him He's been in this church and so he called the office and as soon as she heard his voice, she said, oh, and she called him by his first name. It's so good to hear from you. And without missing a beat, he said, excuse me, you will call me Dr. So-and-so. Okay. He wanted to put you in your place. He's up here, you're down here, you will address him. As Dr. So-and-so. Contrast that with, and I won't call his name, with a, a pastor of a mega church whom I have never met. Never been to his church. He had no clue who I was. But he heard about a struggle I was going through in ministry many years ago. And one day I received a phone call. Pastor so-and-so from such-and-such church is on the phone calling for you. Going, <laughs> No, he no, can't. Somebody's playing a joke. I assumed it was some pastor friend of mine playing a joke that some big-wig mega-church pastor, mega pastor is calling me. So I got on the phone, hello, this is Pastor Ricky Powell, and I discovered it is who he says he is. And he said, I know you don't know me, and I don't know you, but through a mutual friend, I just heard a little bit about what you're going through, and I just wanted to call and talk to you for a minute. God just put you in my heart. I, I want to just encourage you, Pastor. For a solid hour, that pastor spoke to me, a man he had never met in a small church compared to his mega church with tens of thousands of people. And for an hour, he gave me good counsel. He listened He prayed with me. He said, I want you and your wife to come to my city. All expenses paid. We're going to put you up in a hotel. I want you to just worship here at our church. You need to take a break. You need to get your eyes off the problems. And you just need to get your eyes on Jesus. You come and spend a weekend with us and let our church take care of you. I never took him up on that offer, by the way. But that was humility. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how high and mighty you think you are. I don't care how much you achieve in this world. I don't care what your skin color is, what your educational background is, how much money you have in the bank or don't have in the bank. I know this. One day we will all stand before a holy God and we will give an account of our lives and we are going to be looked at by him, not based on all those earthly criteria, but he's going to want to see, did you act justly? Did you love mercy and did you walk in humility before me? Because when it's all said and done, that's really all that matters. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, how good God's been to you. Just like he was good to Israel in Jesus, he's been good to you. I beseech you based on the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God. That's the least you can do. Based on what God's done for you. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are not saved because we perfectly keep Micah chapter 6 verse 8. None of us ever have. None of us ever will. We are saved because we put our faith in the one who perfectly kept Micah chapter 6 verse 8. You want to see the picture of the perfect Hebrew and the perfect human You look to Jesus. Talk about one who acted justly. If we know anything about Jesus, we know he lived every moment of every day acting justly. Those hands that did nothing but help and heal were nailed to a Roman cross. Those feet that did nothing but to take him to the next person that needed the grace of God were nailed to a bloody cross That head that walked in humility before His heavenly Father was crowned with a crown of thorns. And the greatest injustice that has ever been perpetrated on planet Earth, He turned to become the greatest act of justice where sinners can be forgiven through His own shed blood on the cross. You talk about one who loved mercy That he would look at you and he would look at me with all the sin that we've ever committed. All the ungodly thoughts that we've ever thought. All the things that we would be ashamed of if anyone else knew. And yet he says to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I know you've not always been true to me. But look back on your life and you'll discover I've always been true to you. And talking about one who walked humbly before his... Heavenly Father, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, even though he was equal with God, he did not think equality with God, something to be selfishly grasped, but he humbled himself and became one of us in the manger of Bethlehem. And he humbled himself and became a servant. And not only did he become a servant, God serving humanity, but he humbled himself to the point of death the death of the cross. That's humility. And God has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. He is Lord whenever you want to know, what does this look like in my day-to-day life? What does this look like in my marriage? What does this look like in my relationship with my children, small or grown? What does this look like in my relationship with my parents? What does this look like in my relationship to my, my friend or my neighbor or my coworker or a stranger I meet on the street or the faces I see on the television? What does this look like when I'm confronting the political issues that divide us? What does this look like when I'm facing the, the racial divide??? What does this look like to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before God? If you will look to Jesus, you'll find your answer. Go and follow His example as best you can through the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, who in your life needs you to act justly towards them and to seek justice for them? Who in your life needs a little loving kindness and mercy and forgiveness shown by you to them. And how can you demonstrate humility before God? Well, you do it by remembering that no matter what you say or what you see about other people, we're all just sinners before a perfect holy God. And if that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. And imagine what it'll do in this community if we seek to be known as a church, Corporately, that seeks to act justly in this community. A church that loves mercy and a church that walks humbly before God. I know it's been a long time, it feels like an eternity since I cast vision to you that God had laid on our heart that we need to be for this community. And in the next five years, we're going to give $100,000 to partners in this community, nonprofits who are doing good work to help. Hurting people. In the last two years, you gave $66,000 to rescue women from human trafficking, on top of the $180,000 you already gave to missions. That's what it looks like to act justly, to seek mercy, and to walk humbly. And that'll be a difference made that the world will see. Here's your homework. I love giving you homework. Because if we just walk out of here and we do nothing with what we've heard, we've missed the whole point. The Bible wasn't given just for your information. It was given for our transformation. So here's your homework, twofold. First of all, I want you to come back next week or tune in next week for a conversation between just me and my brother, Greg Burden. The second thing I want you to do is... Whatever form of a to-do list you keep or a task list that you keep or a reminder system that you use. Maybe it's on your phone. Maybe you still use a a day timer. Maybe maybe you use an app on your phone. Or or maybe you just write it on the margin of your calendar every day this coming week. Whatever it is on your to-do list, in your reminders, I want you to write those three words or those three phrases Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. What do I need to do today? What's on my to-do list today? What do I need to accomplish today? When it's all said and done, I need to act justly. I need to love mercy. I need to walk humbly with my God. I need that reminder. You need that reminder because that's what's going to please God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for this clarification of what pleases you. And Father, I know there's so much more that we could have said today, but we all now know enough to live different lives by your power and your strength as we leave this place today. And God, it will have to be by your power because we don't have the strength to do this, to act justly to love mercy, to walk humbly. In fact, God, the tendency of my heart is to do the opposite in all three of those things. But I need your strength. I need your power through the Spirit of God in my life. I need the, the example of Jesus, that supreme example of what this looks like, to be in the forefront of my thinking every moment of every day. And I need to see people, and I need to see problems, and I need to see politics through the lens of my relationship with Jesus and what he calls me to do in acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. And Father, we can't control what other people do, but we can submit ourselves to you and ask by your grace you would help us to live out Micah chapter 6 verse 8. And God, there could be somebody in this room today for the first time in their life who needs to turn to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. I pray that right now where they are in this room or watching from home or at work or in their car, wherever they are, that right now they would welcome Jesus into their life to forgive them of their sin, to be their Lord and their Savior, and to give them the strength to live a life that is pleasing to God, our Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.